0: Okay, so uh, my name is Ben Henderson, um, and I'm a resident here at Gospel Grace, and uh, so we're gonna, I'm going to be picking up from where I left off last week. However, if you weren't here last week, that's okay. You'll just miss a bit on how to love your neighbors so, or, and love your enemies. So if you wanted more information on that, you can talk to me later. But we talked about how the area of relationships is specifically one sphere where the fear of man can be felt most acutely and most presently in our everyday lives. We talked about how the fear of God should affect the way that we should treat those who are enemies, and today we're going to talk about how the fear of God should overwhelm the way that we treat our neighbors, both those who are, uh, both those who are out of the church and those who are in the church, um, and how specifically being in community with a local church can be really helpful to us when we try to fear God more than other people. And so, the category of people we're talking about today, when it comes to the fear of man and relationships, is our neighbor. What seems to be a standard kind of in, in society or in uh, Western civilization today now is that you should treat others well, right? We should love others because it's the right thing to do, and that's almost assumed now that that's good and that's the right thing. There's, that's kind of the accepted standard on what is good, you know, helping those in need. But... This is something that has not always been the case. Like if you look at, uh, if you look at human history, um, and especially if you look at the Roman Empire, which is how the kind of the historical epic where Christianity began and grew during the time of the Roman Empire, this was not really the case. Loving your neighbors and caring for those is not really what was practiced. You know, love, sure your family or your close social group or maybe like uh, care about other people in order to get stuff, gain fame, gain gain prosperity from other people. Yes, but loving your neighbors just for the sake of loving them, that wasn't the case. So uh, Tom Holland, not the Spider-Man Tom Holland, sorry, but uh, the one who wrote a pretty awesome book. It's called Dominion. Uh, It traces the way. Here it is right here. It's really great if you want to check it out later. He's not a Christian, but he has some really interesting stuff. Uh, so he talks about how our, our modern ethical system and our conception of rights and freedoms and the idea of equality really comes from Christianity. Right? The reason why treating others with love and respect is almost like uni- uni- unanimously. Yeah, there we go. unanimously accepted as like that's what you should do right now is really because the influence the Bible has on society. Not a lot of people realize that. So when you give money to help poor people, or you give money to, uh, like we give money to support adoption, or help, uh, like we give money and uh, support for helping an orphanage in Peru. Uh, when, when we do that, we're participating in the long tradition of Christianity in charity. That's what it is. And so when the idea of a, a home for orphans or charity to the poor was really supported and propagated by Christians in the first few centuries CE, it's received like some pretty actually severe pushback. Like, like the, the, the Romans struggle with this idea of like, you're gonna help someone that's, that's, that's poor and needy. Like they should just go and do it themselves. Tom Holland writes in his book about, this, uh, about a Roman emperor. His name is Julian the Apostate. So he was, he was the emperor of the Roman Empire in the uh the fourth century so this is post-constantine if you have a christian history uh some information floating around your brain so it's post-constantine which means that there's plenty of people in the roman empire who are christians however it isn't all the way across the empire and julian is one of the emperors who actually wants to revert back to paganism but the problem is that as Julian tries to revert back to paganism in their society, like he realizes that he can't get rid of this Christian impulse to love your neighbors. So what he actually does is he wants to combine this like caring for your neighbors with the worship of old pagan gods. And Holland writes about this in his book about how absurd his conclusions were. He writes that the gods cared nothing for the poor. To think otherwise was airhead talk. When Julian, writing to the high priest of Galatia, quoted Homer on the laws of hospitality and how even beggars might appeal to them, he was merely drawing attention to the scale of his delusion. The heroes of the Iliad, favorites of the gods, golden and predatory, had scorned the the weak and downtrodden. So too, for all the honor that Julian paid them, had philosophers. The starving deserved no sympathy. Beggars were best rounded up and deported. Pity risked undermining a wise man's self-control. You know, that that was the perspective of the pagan Romans. And so in contrast to these widespread practices that the pagan world had, were the bishops and leaders of the early church. And specifically, I'll highlight the ones that became known as the Cappadocian Fathers. So there's a guy named Basil and his brother Gregory, Uh, they built some of these early shelters for the poor in what is now modern-day Turkey. Basel promoted construction of one of the first hospitals, and Holland writes this. He writes, Basel, who had studied medicine while in Athens, did not himself scorn to tend the sick. Even lepers, whose deformities and superations rendered them objects of particular revulsion, might be welcomed by the bishop with a kiss and given both refuge and care. The more broken men and women were, the readier was Basel to glimpse Christ in them. And that early Christians loved their neighbors. They loved the poor. They loved those who needed help, as opposed to the pagans. Basel's brother Gregory condemned the practice of slavery. And the both of their sister, a woman by the name of Macrina, was uh, well known for taking in infants who had been abandoned in a practice that's reminiscent of modern-day abortion. And that they would take in people who... Who were, who were being exposed, basically to left to die, by their parents. And so to the early Christians, including Gregory, Basil and Macrina, loving your neighbor wasn't just taken for granted like it is today. Romans looked down and scorned Christian weakness, as they called it. It was on display with their servant care for the poor. And so acquiescing to the fear of man would mean forgetting the weak and the poor and going along with the cultural expectations of the time and simply just caring for your own or caring for people that would only get you stuff. You know, and while caring for your neighbor is something that's assumed of good people today, the way by which we do that isn't always accepted. And loving radically the way that Jesus calls us to doesn't really meet the same standard the world sees. You know, the idea is that, okay, yes, okay, love your neighbor, but do so to make yourself look good or do so to make yourself, uh, you know, gain, gain esteem in the eyes of others. Give money for that purpose. But Christianity is always aimed at the heart. And once it, you do good and you love your neighbor because your heart is right, because it's been changed by God. And so that's why, especially, in, you know, you can see it in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about giving secretly, without pride, in our treasure, our times, and our talents. And so uh, the call to be a leader in the mold of Christ is, is about humility, right? We're, we're called to be uh, well, humble, right? It's lowering ourselves and lifting others up the way that Jesus did for us, right? The perfect God-man, he came to earth. And descended to take on human flesh in a fallen world right he avoided sin yet he still suffered and paid the penalty that we deserved by dying on the cross for us and in so dying and bearing the cross and the curse of sin for us he defeated the power of death so that through faith we can be reconciled to him and have a good relationship with god right we should be humble obedient and prayerful those three categories we've talked about throughout the whole course right a, um, a people pleaser, someone that fears man, seeks their own exaltation and glory by doing good for others. Where a God-fearer seeks God's glory by esteeming others more highly than themselves from the heart. The world wants us to enlarge ourselves and our own reputation just for our own sake, right? The assumed outlook on the world is, yes, okay, I'm supposed to give to the poor, but only in a way that benefits me. Instead, the fear of God is different. Our hearts matter, our motivations matter. The fear of man says we treat others well for the way that it benefits me. But fear of God means that we treat others well even if there's zero benefits for ourselves. The fear of man says that you'll play favorites, right? And use, use other people's status and money. But the fear of God says that I care about you because God loves you, because you're made in the image of God. The fear of man says, like, okay, I'll affirm your behavior and just say it's okay as long as it makes you feel good about yourself. But the fear of God means that I love you and care for your soul enough that even when it might hurt me, I'll stand up for the truth and tell you if you're wrong. We shouldn't expect non-Christians to act, moral, or act uh, in a, a Christian moral sense, but we should point them towards the Bible and point them constantly towards the cross. Now, if you ever want a, a trial run about experiencing the fear of man uh, in a very uh, intense level, I highly recommend the occupation of refereeing Okay, has anyone, has anyone ever experienced, like, has anyone reffed games or done things? All right, Calen, all right, nice, Ben. Okay, Gabe, cool, yeah. So, like, I bet you guys know this, right, but I would say that there's nowhere where the vitriol directed towards officials is most apparent and vulgar than in the area of youth sports. <laughs> it is nasty, and even probably if you're a parent or, like, you've just kind of, like, watched as you're driving past a park on a Saturday and seen some of the chaos that goes on, right? Being, being a youth soccer referee especially was, I would say for me, as someone who, who struggles with the fear of man, in a bit, this is very sanctifying, I would almost say, and that it reminded me of, yes, like, there really is nothing I can do to please people, right? Like, um, so one of, the, one of the stories that I have that I think is great, so uh, I was refereeing a soccer game, and it was a U14 game, so this is like 13-year-old kids, you know, like, early, middle school age kids. Um, and so I was the center ref. So in, in soccer, you have a center ref, and they're in charge of everything, and you have two assistants. So I was the center ref, so I was in charge of everything, which I like. Um, and so the, the whole game, as I was refing the game, one side of the parents, who was a team from Nevada, uh, they were like everything. Like everything was wrong. It was like a, a throw-in at midfield that I called to the other team, and they're like, What, what is that? Just did not make sense. But anyway, there was a... Uh, I was going forward on the wing, uh, and the other team, so the team with the uh, not quite as qu- crazy parents, they were driving forward on the, on the wing, and they got fouled. You know, a pretty high, reckless challenge, clearly a yellow card. Now, the problem is that this, this player that had committed the foul had already received a yellow card earlier for delaying the game. And so it was like right near the sidelines, right next to the parents who were the worst thing, and if you get two yellow cards in soccer, that means you get a red, which means you get sent off, you're ejected. And so right here in front of these parents, they've been yelling at me the whole time. I was like, oh, okay, that's a yellow card. It means this is going to send them off. So right in front of them, I had to give them a second yellow and send them off right there. And like, this is a moment where, you know, like, a, as a referee, your job is to make sure that the game is going smoothly. And so in order to do that, you need to enforce the rules. And in order to force the, enforce the rules, in that situation, I'm doing something that the parents are clearly not going to like right in front of them. And so that was the best thing to do. And so in not succumbing to the fear of man at that moment, gave him the red card, sent him off, and the parents were not the most pleased. There was, there was some, uh, some uh, uh, anger directed towards me that actually came out onto the field, some parents, uh, which my reaction to that was to say, leave in my big referee voice, very commanding. And then I went and talked to the, the coach and I said, okay, you need to tell those parents to leave. I, I wanted to eject the parents who had come out onto the field because they, that was inappropriate. You can't enter the field. And so I told the coach, I was like, okay, those parents need to leave. I went over, waited for that to happen. It didn't happen. I said, okay, we're going to wait one more minute. If they're not gone, then we're ending the game. They didn't leave. So I ended the game and abandoned it right then and there because that was the right thing to do. Right? Even though it's kind of an unpleasant thing right there, I need to officiate in a way that's fair. I need to uphold the rules of the game. And so, that's what I did. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so, in the same way, we as Christians, we must cling firmly to the word. Right? When people disagree with us, we need to respond in love, but not seek to displease them at the expense of the gospel. We love our neighbor radically by being faithful to the Bible, which is increasingly difficult in an increasingly secular age. So, uh, what's the best way? So, loving our neighbor. So, first of all, what we should do is we should hum- be humble in all that we do. Right? We clothe ourselves in humility by freely admitting when we do mess up. I mean, I-, I actually do this as 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 a referee to go back to that. Right? As a referee, if I know that I messed up or something, I- I'll acknowledge that I'm not perfect out there after the game, not during the game, but after the game, we're like, ah, I might have not been perfect. Right? The world says that we should just have ourselves look good and we have a mistake, we should try to cover it up, or maybe blame it on other people. But Christ honoring of loving our neighbors comes when we admit our errors and allow the consequences to follow even if we might lose something out of it. Maybe at work um, or, uh, or in your relationships with friends or things like that. Um, we, should, we should show humility and ask for forgiveness. Um, and so even, even when it comes to, yeah, friends um, and spouses, especially those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, we should acknowledge that we have sinned and admit our error. You know, we want to identify our sins. Specifically, when we're talking, about, when we're talking to uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to identify the sin by its biblical name. Right? We call it what it is, whether that's pride, lust, envy, idolatry, or whatever. We, call it, we admit our sins and call it by its biblical name of the sin it is. We acknowledge the harm that we've caused the other person. We admit how our wrong might have personally damaged them or our relationship with each other. And then we ask uh, for forgiveness for the misdeed and try to identify specific areas where we could be better and improve in the future. As Christians, we don't hide our sin. We bring it to the light so it can be dealt with. fear of man might want to cause us to hide that. But... The fear of God means we bring it to the surface. We bring our sins to the surface. We can be set free as Christ offers us forgiveness. Well, when we're asking for forgiveness for others, we should also forgive other people when they've wronged us. We shouldn't look for retribution. But as we talked about earlier, we're talking about love of our enemies. We should be willing to forgive. And humility means that we know that we're forgiven because we know we're forgiven by Christ. We can forgive others a humble person who loves their neighbor doesn't assume the worst in them. They apply goodwill towards their neighbor and just don't say, okay, like you did that because you want to wrong me, right? It says, okay, like you give goodwill to other people when they're, they're doing things to you, right? We don't say to ourselves, right? Okay, my, my colleague set me up for failure purposely to make themselves look better or say, oh, like doesn't my boss already know how much I do to them, right? That kind of, that kind of attitude is, isn't Christ-like. Instead, we give people the benefit of the doubt and interpret their actions in the same way. At the same time, we, uh, we don't assume that our own time, opinions, and money, and energy are also more valuable than someone else's. We give value to our neighbors by, by listening to them, by purposely hearing them, rather than just kind of looking for a way to respond or get back. We commend others and compliment them when they deserve it, especially when they're doing uh, and, and acting in a biblical way. And that might even make you look bad. Right, by telling others that they're doing something well, you might have to lower yourself in the process. Sometimes we fear to tell others how much they have, you know, done good because we feel like, eh, well, I don't get that compliment. I don't get that, so I shouldn't give to other people. Humility is about developing a servant's attitude. And so Lou Priolo in his book, uh, Pleasing People, which you also have up here, this one right here, I've quoted this one. Uh, a bit during, during the, the course, so feel free to check that out as well. He writes about uh, doing, good, how doing good things for others out of a uh, fear of uh, doing good things for others out of, uh, yeah, if we want to love God, we should do it with a servant's heart. And so this is one of the things he writes. It says, he, it has to do with your motive. A servant's heart is an attitude that seeks to serve others, not for selfish reasons, such as a desire to impress people so they'll like you, or a fear if they're not coddled, they will reject you, but for their good and for God's glory. It's a spirit of wanting to do what is best for others in light of eternity. It's giving without expecting anything back from anyone. It's serving, knowing that your reward for such service will be given to you not by man, but by God, not necessarily in this life, but the next one. So if you learn to serve others, not for self-exaltation, but because you love God and neighbor, you just may find a whole new joy in serving that you have hereto out, heretofore never known. Right? It's all about the motive. It's all about the heart. So some practical, uh, some practical uh, advice in that, in that vein is to uh, ask how others form their opinion of you right? Do people just base their estimation of you by superficial characteristics that they see on the outside, but by good Christian character and values that you're displaying day-to-day on, a, on an everyday basis consistently, right, Is it your looks, your wealth, your skills, your smarts, your friends that others base their value of you on? Or is it your character? Solid God-honoring behavior should be the standard by others judge you, and not just kind of what it, what it, uh, what it, what it looks like or those external things. Priolo continues, he admonishes Christians not to just kind of fish for compliments, even creatively. Maybe do you purposely put yourself down so others will disagree and give you the encouragement that you crave. Or do you bring up topics for discussion maybe that you want to be praised for? Looking for acclamation from the world could be a sign of the fear of man. Flattery should be avoided as well, both in seeking out flatterers um, and in the way that you treat other people. We should be content with our God-given status in life. We shouldn't be envy and covetous of other people and their, their status. Kind of along, along that same lines, we shouldn't overvalue friendships. I mean, friendships are so important, but we need to prioritize loyalty to God above loyalty to people. If we're so caught up in the need for affection from a certain individual, then that's idolatry. We need to stay in lockstep with scripture, even if our biblically affirmed positions negatively affect our relational prospects. Think about things maybe that even embarrass you about yourself. Consider your weaknesses. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians about uh, bragging about his weaknesses because in those weaknesses, Christ is strong. Right? Brag about our weaknesses because that's where Christ works. It's okay to admit weakness. We shouldn't try to overlook that. And finally, just give your reputation to the Lord. When you're, when you're uh, talking with other people, leave your, your reputation up to him. Right, you remember we're not our own; we belong to God. And so, if we work for ourselves and promote our own good, then we're fearing man over God. Remember, His is the only opinion that matters. So, how can we do this well? I mean, one of the one of the key ways is being involved in church. I mean, being here at a, at a gospel growth class shows, shows a level of of commitment. I and mean, just generally, having Christians around you in your life, pointing you towards the fear of God, is super valuable. Having people that will love you, not simply be nice to you. That's just really, really important to have those people. One of Satan's goals is to divide people within the church, which is why Jesus and Paul both uh, admonish the church constantly to remain united. Um, I mean, we just, uh, we just finished up not too long ago a, uh, a sermon series on Paul's letter, or letter, <laughs> Paul's, uh, letter to the Corinthians. And the, in Corinth, the church was... The church was rife with disunity, right? There were factions, there was this group and that group and all these different things. And Paul says, no, you need to love each other, right? In 1 Corinthians 13, he lays out how you should love each other. Remember that famous love passage? He writes, and he's talking to the church here, right? This isn't isn't for, for weddings. This is how people should, in the church, need to be united. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not insistent on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that's the love that we should have within the body of Christ. We should do good for our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you ever spent time in uh, in different cultures, one one thing you'll you'll notice is the difference would be uh, how how as, as Americans a lot of times the the value of of self reliance and doing things all yourself, right? That's a thing that we pride as Americans. Well, I, I was reading how. Uh, translators especially have, have a lot of trouble conveying this idea of self-reliance as they're going to other cultures because it's such a foreign concept to, to people outside the, the Western world that you would kind of make your own decisions in isolation away from your community. That's so crazy. And we, we, as, we as Christians in the Bible, it assumes that we should live our lives in community. Ed Welch writes this, he writes, when, I, when we think of ourselves as alone and isolated, we will always be prone to fear other people. Isolation and the fear of man are close companions. Yet when we truly understand that God has called us to participate in a larger family, which is the church, we are free. Church begins to feel a little more like a family sitting with us in our living room. I mean, I've seen this on display in my own life. I mean, one of the things that, uh, that happened to me recently is I got engaged last week. And so, me, thanks, I wasn't fishing for compliments there, I promise. <laughs> now, one of the things that uh, myself and my fiance Kelsey, we, we were really trying to do is live our lives in community. And so making the decision to get married was done as a part of a community of believers. And having our relationship on display for other wise people that are able to speak into our lives was really, was really important. And that happens within the context of a local church. When we make decisions in the context of the church, people are there to keep us accountable. And people are there to, to support us in that, which is really important. In, um, uh, in Psalm 133, it talks about how good it is when brothers live together in unity. The Israelites were punished as a community when Achan sinned in Joshua 7, but when they are unified in one purpose, God blessed them like he did when they were able to finish the walls in Nehemiah. So how can we build this unity? Well, I mean, first of all, we shouldn't expect it to be easy. I mean, Jesus prayed for our unity when he prayed for the church in John 17. But Satan wants to use this unity for his own purposes. We should expect tax on that unity. And so our reaction to that should be humility, obedience, and prayer. Just like we've been talking about over the whole course of this. We should be humble in admitting our mistakes to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We confess our sins to one another. We share with our brothers and sisters in need. We're vulnerable to other people and our own humility. We are willing to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. We should also seek wisdom from wise, wise counsel and knowing when to confront sin in other people and also when not to. Fearing God means obedience which I think especially is good useful in this context means joining a local church in membership, right? It means submitting to to people, submitting to church leaderships and things and serving the body of believers. It means living your life within that community at your church and not just sitting on the sidelines to experience the unity that God wants us to have. we need not simply just to attend church on Sunday to be part of the everyday rhythms and uh, be united to our spiritual brothers and sisters. You need to be a committed part of that community to obey God as He wants. And fearing God means prayer. Just as Jesus prayed for us in John 17, it means prayer for unity, praying for our brothers and sisters in their needs. Pray and pray for the church as a whole. Pray that the gospel goes out into the world. Spend purposeful time in prayer each day for others in the church, for our church leaders, and for others to be brought in and to join the church. Look to encourage our brothers and sisters also that have blessed you. Right? Encourage I mean, the nursery workers. You're picking up your kids with the, if the worship music was especially edifying and uh, build built you up that week. Encourage people in their gifts. This is this is this is our job as, as church members. In First uh, Thessalonians five eleven it says to encourage one another and build one another up. And so our relationships with others can can show the fear of man really really apparently I think in our lives, but our relationships can also point us towards the fear of God especially when it comes to dealing with our enemies and our neighbors. So I'll leave today with a, with a challenge to you. So there's a few different things. So if you want to write this down, you're allowed to. If you don't, that's okay. But um, first, pick, pick someone uh, in your life that's maybe, uh, maybe an enemy or like maybe at this point in your life, like there's someone that you're, you're having trouble relating to for some reason and spend time in prayer for them. Don't just kind of let it go, but think about a person that you can pray for. And uh, I'm sure that that can help in your fearing of people above God. Next, look for chances to surprise others with love, both inside and outside the church. And don't do it just to make yourself look good, but, but do it secretly. Think about ways that you can encourage uh, community within the church. Is there someone that you should try and uh, have coffee with or, or maybe a family from your community group or something that would be good to have dinner with? Introduce yourself to someone new on Sunday, you know, on the the time here. Or maybe even like attend the second service. It could be a great great opportunity to meet someone new, uh, to promote that Christian community. Uh, Maybe maybe you need to more actively pursue church membership. It's an important part of being involved um, in that Christian community that can help you. Think also about ways that you can honor others in the body of Christ. Who has been an encouragement to you lately that you should tell? How has someone pointed you better towards Jesus? So encourage them in that. And encourage them genuinely in their gifts, which is, your, which is our role as members of the body of Christ. So think about these things in your conversation with others uh, as you go from today. So let me pray, and then we'll begin. Dear God, I pray that you would give us opportunities this week to, to love others the way that you love them. God, I pray that you would, you would give us a, a love for people that, that shines forth your gospel. Uh, God help us here on on Sunday to, uh, to grow in community so we can better serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.